0: Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3 today, beginning at verse 10. And we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter, and then come back and take a closer look at these verses in detail. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them to 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes these words. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse. that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. When Paul wrote this epistle to Timothy, we said that he was trying to get his young protege ready for what was to come. Paul didn't mince any words here. He made it very clear that Timothy was going to face times of difficulty or seasons of difficulty. And he spells that out in very vivid detail. If you look at the first nine verses of this chapter, he says, understand this, that in the last days, and we said that the last days is a reference really to that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and his return in glory. And so during this period of time, however long that period of time may be, and we really don't know, nobody knows when the Lord is going to come again. Even Jesus said, I don't know when it's going to happen. He said, the Father alone knows when this is going to take place. But in that Interim, in that period of time between his ascension to the Father and his return in glory, he says there will come times of difficulty for believers. And he says, Timothy, I want you to understand this. He says, for people will be lovers of self. And we said that that was the the first misstep. People became lovers of self, and from there there was a downhill spiral. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Then there'll be a problem within the family structure as well, disobedient to their parents. People will be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. They'll be brutal, not the lovers of good. He said, and then when you see this, this collapse of the family, you see the collapse of the culture, and then eventually the collapse of faith itself. He said, for people will have the appearance of godliness, but they will deny its power. Now, he gives Timothy one little word of encouragement. He said, Rest assured they will not get far. In other words, we know how the story ends, Timothy. We know that God has written the last chapter already, and He's told us how the story is going to conclude. God's going to win. But the question, Timothy, is what are you to do in the meantime? What are you and I to do? In the meantime, during these seasons of difficulty, all right, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We know that times of difficulty are going to come for us as Christians. We're going to face persecution for the sake of Christ. But the question is, even though we know how the story ends, what are we supposed to do in the interim? Well, that's what Paul is talking about here in the verses that conclude this chapter. He says, you, however... You, however, have what? Have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my sufferings. This is Paul's way of saying, what are you to do in the meantime? Well, the first thing you are to do, he says, is to remember. To remember. Remember how far God has already brought you. Uh, Last Sunday, I had the privilege of preaching at an even song, at um, St. James Church for All Saints, and I talked about um, this very theme. I said that if you've ever run a marathon, do we have any marathoners out there, by the way? Anybody that's run a marathon? Anybody at all? Oh, there's Debose. Are you telling me the truth, Debose? <laughs> yeah, all right, okay, all right. Well, God bless you, I'm impressed. Um, so, Well, if you've ever been a marathoner, then you know that you get to a certain point in the race. At least this is what marathoners tell me. I've only done a half marathon, and that was ample for me. (laughs) But you reach a certain point in the race where maybe it's mile 21 or mile 22. The only thing you want to do is just sit down and cry. (laughs) You just want to ball up and cry at mile 22. And then you remember. You remember what? That I've come this far. (laughs) And I've only got, what, four miles to go. And sometimes by remembering, we can gain gain a great deal of strength and courage. We can find the wherewithal to press on. Well, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He said, when the going gets tough, the best thing you can do, Timothy, is to remember. Audrey Hepburn, great actress, put it very well. Toward the end of her life, she was interviewed, and she said this. She says, Living is like tearing through a museum. Not until later do you really start absorbing what you saw, thinking about it, looking it up in a book, and remembering, because you can't take it in all at once. That's true of life, isn't it? Sometimes only after, when we've had the moment to sit down and reflect that we begin to appreciate the things that have passed us by. Well, Paul is saying that to Timothy. saying, Timothy, look, when the times are difficulty, it's so easy to focus on the storm. It's so easy to focus on the persecutions. But in those moments, what I want you to do, Timothy, is not to tear through life. I want you to pause. I want you to stop. I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Remember what? Well, first of all, Paul says, Remember me. Remember what happened to me. One of the things that the scripture says is that there is no temptation that you and I have experienced. There's no persecution, no struggle, no doubt, no fear that you and I have experienced that somebody else has not experienced before us. And if they're a Christian, very often they have managed to triumph over that adversity. That's a great encouragement to us. That's one of the blessings of All Saints Day. All Saints Day is when we remember the faithful who have gone before us. They're they're not people that are sort of two-dimensional figures and stained glass figures. They're not people who have done great things and as a consequence of their greatness that they've achieved this coveted status of saint. No, a saint is a normal Christian. But we celebrate those who've gone before because they are what? They are the saints who have triumphed. They haven't triumphed by their own greatness, but they have triumphed by the grace of God. And the scripture says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We are surrounded by examples of those who've been through we are going through. And yet they have triumphed. And Paul's saying to Timothy, "It may seem, in these times of difficulty, as though you're all alone. You know sometimes when you're going through a difficult time, whatever that difficult time may be, whether it's a physical issue or an emotional issue or a spiritual issue, sometimes don't you feel as though you're the only one? Don't you feel completely <laughs> alone, completely isolated? How many of you have ever experienced that in your life? And you know what? Loneliness, there are lots of emotions out there, but loneliness is probably the worst feeling in the world. The worst thing you can do to a prisoner is put him in what? Solitary isolation. Because you and I were created to be in community, in fellowship with one another. We don't do well by ourselves. Now, I like to say that cats are solitary creatures. But human beings are not. Did you ever notice that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he sent them out what? Two by two. The reason for that. It's because you and I need each other. Now there are those times when, let's admit it, we don't like each other. There are those times when, you know, you don't really like being around other people. I once met a clergyman who was really struggling and I said, what seems to be the problem? He said, well, I love the church, it's just the people I'm struggling with. (laughs) Well, we've all been there, we've all had that experience, but the reality is we need each other. And we don't want to think or believe that we are alone. While well, Paul is trying to tell Timothy, whatever you're facing, I want you to remember, I've been there. He says, remember what happened to me, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lister. What's that's a reference to? Those of you who've been in the Bible study on Acts on Thursdays know exactly what that's a reference to. It was Paul's, per, it was Paul's first missionary journey. He set off with his companion, Barnabas. They traveled down the coast to Seleucia, took a boat over to the Isle of Cyprus. And once they administered around the Isle of Cyprus, facing some opposition, they traveled back up to the continent, and they went to Pisidian Antioch, to Iconium, to Lystra, and to Derbe. That was the first missionary journey. And what is interesting is that in every single one of those cities, Paul faced persecution. In Pisidian Antioch, we're told that he went into the Sabbath on one day. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. People were so impressed with his message, they said, Come back next week. And we're told that many of them followed him out of the synagogue, speaking to him about these things. I've always said that is every clergyman's dream, every clergyman's wife's nightmare. <laughs> they followed him home. Don't stop preaching to us. You know, that doesn't happen generally anymore. Most of the time, I can tell when it's time to stop. I see somebody go like this. (laughs) Then you see somebody go like this. (laughs) Then you see somebody go like this, and you know, it's time to wrap it up. But on that occasion, they followed Paul home. It was a wonderful occasion. Come back the next week. We want to hear more about this. And when he came back, we're told the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's what the scripture says. The whole city had gathered. And we're told the Jews were filled with jealousy because the whole city had never gathered before. Now these newcomers come, they show up for church on Sunday and somebody is sitting in their pew. (laughs) And they're irritated by that. And we're told they begin to talk abusively against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. And so they went on to Iconium. When we're told that some of the people from Pisidian Antioch followed them to Iconium and talked abusively against them there, they went on to Lystra, preached the gospel there. There was division in the community, and on the part of those who were opposed to the gospel, persecution erupted against Paul. He was literally dragged outside the city and stoned, unconscious, and left for dead. And when he finally recovered, what did he do? He went on to Derby, and he faced persecution and opposition in Derby. At which point, the apostles decided that it was probably best to go back and report to the church that had sent them, the church in Antioch of Syria. Now, the most direct route back to Antioch in Syria was through modern-day Turkey and through one of the major metropolitan areas of that time, a place called Tarsus. Now, what's the significance of Tarsus? It was Paul's hometown. So if you're going to go home, that's a great place to go through. Go through Tarsus, where people love you, where people care about you. And do you know what Paul did? They said, yes, let's go back and report to the church, but let's not take the easy route. Let's go back through the towns where we have just been and strengthen and encourage the believers. That is, let's go back to Derby. Let's go back to Lystra, where they beat me up and stoned me. Let's go back to Pisidian Antioch and to Iconium and to all of those places. Paul was saying, Timothy, remember me. I know what you're going through. I know the persecutions and the hardships and the difficulties. Remember what happened to me in Lystra? I was dragged outside the city and left for dead. But what did I do? I didn't give up. I pressed on. I trust the Lord. How do you respond in these trials? Paul said you respond with patience, with love, and with steadfastness or endurance. How do you get patience? Well, perhaps. How do you get patience? You only get patience through affliction, my friends. We love patience as a virtue but we want God to give it to us right now. Isn't that the way? Patience comes to us through affliction, through difficulty. That's how you learn to be patient in the midst of sufferings. That's why I've always said I've never asked for patience. Lots of things I ask the Lord for, I've never asked for patience. Because I know his recipe for getting it. God tells me, I don't care whether you're asking for it or not. You're going to get it because you need it. Paul responded with patience. All of that was designed to shape him, to hone him into the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it means to be a Christian, to be Christ-like, to be a little Christ? Well, what did Christ endure? His sufferings. If we're going to be Christ-like, this is what it's going to take, ladies and gentlemen. Paul says, remember my love. What do we mean by love? Well, if you have your Bibles, keep your finger there in 2 Timothy and flip over for just a minute to 1 Corinthians. Very famous passage about love. You hear it almost every wedding. Some people say it's overused. Actually, I think it's a great passage. Here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love I am nothing If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love I gain nothing Love is patient and kind it does not envy or boast it is not arrogant or rude It does not insist on its own way It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Then you skip to the end, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And if you've ever been to a wedding and you see a beautiful bride and groom standing up there at the altar and the church is bedecked and it's magnificent you hear those words and you can't help but get a tear in your eye. But if you've ever been married, you know it ain't that simple. (laughs) How many of you think it's that simple? I always say, how about this? Love is not easily angered. Almost every time I preach on this at a wedding, I'll see some woman elbow her husband. (laughs) Love is not easily angered. At which point I say, oh yeah, that's one for the men. How many times do we lose our temper? Breakfast isn't ready, or we're late for work, and our shirt's not pressed, and we, we, we lose our temper. I see somebody patting their husband right now. But here's one for the women. Love keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> oh boy. Isn't that one? Paul says, remember my patience and my love. Love, my friends, is not an emotion. Secondhand or otherwise. Love is hard work. It is an act of the will. And we can only do it by the grace of of God. It's not a matter of how we feel. We, we turn love into an emotion. It's something that happens to us by accident or by chance. We fall in love. Isn't that the way we talk about it? I deal with couples who come to me from time to time and I'll say, well, what seems to be the problem in your life? We just seem to be falling out of love. It's like falling down a flight of stairs or falling into a mud puddle. It's something that happens to us by chance or by accident. But let me tell you something. When Jesus was dying upon the cross and they had plaited that crown of thorns and pierced his brow, when they had put those nails through his hands and his feet and were preparing to drive a lance into his side, he did not feel like loving people. He chose to love them. He chose to forgive them. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, Timothy, in those difficult times, remember my patience and the recipe for getting it. Remember my love. How it would have been so much easier for me to travel on through my hometown and be loved and cared for. But I did what? I chose the hard way and I went back through those places. And I chose to love those who persecuted me in the name of him who chose to love me. Remember my steadfastness. I kept my eyes fixed on the prize. That's how Paul is going to describe it here to Timothy. Toward the end of his life, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And there is now stored up for me a crown of life which the Lord himself will give me on that day. That's what we're supposed to do in the stead. In the difficult times, be patient, be loving, be steadfast. How do we do that? By remembering the example of those who've gone before. We are not alone. Whatever temptations or difficulties you and I are facing, others have faced them before us. In some ways, they faced even greater things. As bad as things may look for us, in terms of what's happening right now in our culture, in terms of what's happening here at St. Philip's and in the diocese, as bad as things are, Nobody's throwing us to the lions, are they? Nobody's throwing us into prison, at least not yet. So we can learn from the example of those who've gone before. But Paul doesn't stop there. He said, remember not only what happened to me, but remember that this is what's going to happen to all who seek to be followers of Jesus Christ. It's all right, Paul says, to be shocked, But we shouldn't be surprised. You know, sometimes Christians are shocked and surprised by what's happening to them. Sometimes you and I, as Americans, are shocked by what's happening in our country, by the erosion of our civil liberties. How many of you are shocked and surprised by that? Be honest. Should we be? Should we be? Listen to what Jesus himself said in John chapter 15. What? It's likely they're going to persecute you? He says they will persecute you. Which is to say that the world has a problem with light. We're living in a dark culture and the world has a problem with light because wherever the light comes, it does a number of things. First of all, it divides the day from the night. And the second thing it does is what? It exposes, doesn't it? (laughs) It exposes. What's the first thing that happens? You go into a place that's dark and dirty, and you turn on the light, you see these creatures scamper for cover, don't you? That's the world in which we live, and we are called to bring the light. Now, the light is not a happy thing, but the light brings growth, doesn't it? The light warms, and that's what the light of the gospel does. Yes, it exposes. It exposes our sin and our brokenness, but it also has the potential to warm our hearts and cause growth. Isn't that how John Wesley described his conversion? He said, I found my heart strangely warmed." Jesus says, if you're going to come as light, and I came as light, I am the light of the world, he said. But he also said, you are the light of the world. You know, if what Jesus is saying here is true, then there is a sense in which if you're not being persecuted as a Christian, Maybe something's wrong. Did you ever think about that? See, we're shocked and surprised by the fact that we are persecuted. (laughs) We should be shocked and surprised if we're supposed to be Christians and we're not being persecuted. So remember, Paul says, that all believers will be persecuted. Remember what happened to me, that in these tough times there are examples for you to follow. And he says, finally, remember this. Remember what? Remember that y- what you have been taught. Remember, in particular, he says, what you have been taught in the Holy Scriptures. Here in today's text, are described as the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, if you're using a different translation... It may seem all scripture is inspired by God. That's the way the old King James Version put it. Nothing wrong with that translation, but it's not the best one. This is going to be a shock to some of you. God does not speak with an English accent. That's the first thing. And he did not write the King James Version of the Bible. It may be beautiful language, it is unfortunately not the most accurate version available to us today. So even though the King James Version says all Scripture is inspired, the problem with inspired is that it's too weak. Shakespeare was inspired, ladies and gentlemen. The Greek word here is theopanustos. Theo meaning God, panustos from which we get the term pneuma or pneumonia, having to do with the lungs, the breathing apparatus of the body. What Paul is saying is that you should pay attention to the scriptures which you were taught. Why? Because they are breathed out by God and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or the woman of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I don't think it's any surprise that Paul, having remembered all these other things that we're supposed to remember, ends his encouragement to Timothy with an admonition to remember, in particular, the scriptures. Why should we remember the scriptures? And you've heard me say before, if there's one issue that right now is the the pressing issue in the church, this is what it is. It's the issue of what is the place of the scriptures in the life of the Christian community. Why should we be listening to the scriptures above all else? Because one of the unique claims of the Christian faith is that God has spoken. God has spoken. That's one of the unique claims of the Christian faith. I've said to you many times before that the essence of Christianity is not religion. Now I know Christianity is described as a religion, one of the great monotheistic religions of the world. You've got Judaism, you've got Islam, and you've got Christianity, the three great religions of the world. And of course there are all kinds of other religions out there in the world, Hinduism, etc. But actually Christianity is not so much religion. You can take out all of the tenets of the religion. And Christianity is still there. Because at its heart, Christianity is not about religion. It's not about rules and regulations. You know, it's interesting. You take the Ten Commandments out of Judaism, pretty much the whole thing has the potential to fall apart. The same thing is true for Islam. You take out all the rules and the regulations, and the whole thing basically falls apart. If you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, that's when everything falls apart. It's been said that Christianity without Christ is like a frame without a picture. It's like a, a casket without a jewel. It's like a body without breath. The heart of our religion, our faith, is not rules and regulations, it's a person. It's possible to know a great deal about God, my friends, and not to know Him personally. In the same way that it's possible to know a great deal about a famous person, the Queen of England, for instance, but never have a relationship with her. There are all kinds of people out there that have been raised on religion their whole life. They've gone to church their whole life. They know a great deal about God. They may know the catechism by heart, but they do not have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And they can't understand, and they are somehow mystified by those who do. Well, that's why Paul says, above all, Timothy, remember the scriptures. Why? Because if you want to have a relationship with God, he's got to speak to us. Why does God have to take the initiative? Well, one of the reasons is because you and I are finite. And he's infinite. Unless God makes himself known to us, there is no way for us to discover who he is. So God has to reveal himself. And that's one of the unique claims of Christianity. We believe that God has revealed himself. How has he revealed himself? Well, in three ways in particular. If you go back to Romans chapter one, easy to find, great epistle, Romans chapter one, Paul makes it very clear that God has made himself known, first of all, in the created order. This is what theologians call general revelation. God has made himself known in the things that have been made. If you were in the Bible study this past Thursday on Acts, I talked a little bit about this because Paul was on Mars Hill, and this was the starting point for his address to those Greek philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Basically what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is that atheism, he's not talking about agnosticism, but atheism is an untenable position. Why is it an untenable position? He said, because atheism says there is no God, and yet he says we know there is a God because he has made himself known to us. How? In the created order. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what Paul writes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Because men, by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. Isn't that Interesting doesn't say that men are ignorant of the truth. He says they suppress the truth. That is to say they know the truth but they refuse to acknowledge it. This was the problem for the Pharisees, my friends. The problem with the Pharisees was not that they didn't understand. The problem with the Pharisees was that they understood all too well and they still suppressed the truth. Do you remember on the night that Nicodemus came to see Jesus, he came under the cover of darkness and we're told that he was a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin? And he came by to Jesus by night. Why did he come under the cover of darkness? He didn't want the other Pharisees to know he was coming. But John tells us that he was a Pharisee, that he was a member of the ruling council. He was a powerful and important man. He came under the cover of darkness. He knocks on the Lord's door. When the door is open, Nicodemus does all the talking, it appears. First thing he says is, We know. We know. Who's the we? Well, presumably the other Pharisees. (laughs) The Sanhedrin, the members of the ruling council. We know. What do we know? We know that you are a man who has come from God, for no one could be doing the things that you are doing unless God were with him. That's one of the most damning statements in all of Scripture. Because what it was was an admission that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was a man who had been sent from God, but they were so jealous of him that they suppressed the truth. They suppressed it in their own hearts and they did everything in their power to suppress it in public. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen to this, is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. Paul says, you have to teach children to become atheists. Because there is something within every single one of us that bears witness when you look at the created order to the fact that there is a god. That's called general revelation. And it's interesting to note that even in the most primitive of cultures, C.S. Lewis pointed this out in the opening chapters of Mere Christianity, even in the most primitive of cultures, people have an innate desire to worship. It doesn't matter how primitive the culture, it doesn't matter how sophisticated the culture. There is an innate human desire to worship. It's hardwired into us. And Paul is saying that's because God has made himself known to us in the things that have been made. We call that general revelation. Now, general revelation is wonderful, but it's limited. It can tell us that there is a God. It cannot tell us what that God is like. Now, you can go out on your dock on a lovely fall evening and watch the sunset over the river and everything's right in your world, and you look out at that and you say to yourself, how can somebody not believe in God? But you know, the same God, who created that beautiful picture, is also responsible in some way or another for hurricanes, and tornadoes, and tsunamis. It's the same nature, you see so when you look at the created order, it can tell you, because there is order out there in the world, my friends, there is order. That's what we're told in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And nothing has been made that has been made except through Him. There was a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. Heraclitus was the man who said that if you step into a river and back out of the river and step back into the river again, it's not the same river. He said, the world is in a constant state of flux. It's always changing. And one of his disciples came to him and said, well, if that is true, if the world is also always changing, there's always movement, how is it that there appears to be order in the universe? And Heraclitus said, there is a logos, Greek term. There's a logos which governs or controls the change. Well, isn't it interesting that John took that same Greek philosophical word and applied it to Jesus Christ? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You want to know what brings order to the universe? It is God. And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, we know that there is a God because there is order, even in the midst of some of the chaotic moments. But while that general revelation can tell us that there is a God, we want to know more. We want to not only know about Him, we want to have a relationship with Him. What is required for that? Well, what is required for that is a special revelation. A second level of revelation. And that's what we're told we receive in the person of Jesus Christ. That Word is made flesh. That Word that governs the change, that orders the universe. That One through whom all things were made, that Word came down. Philippians chapter 2 for just a minute. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing and took the form of a what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That word, who was equal with the Father, who had all of the glory and the honor that was by rights God's alone, he had that. But he did what? He let it go. And he took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death upon the cross. And for what purpose? So that you and I might not merely know about him, that we might know him personally. Let me tell you something. There's no story like that anywhere in the world. God has revealed himself that he exists in the created order, but he has made himself known supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. He came down. You know, I've said this many times before, as human beings, you and I are willing to let go of good things if we know something better is coming along. If somebody says, I want you to give up your car, and you say, well, my car is only three years old, I'll give you a brand new one. Oh, well, okay. Sometimes we're willing to give up a good girlfriend. We know there's a better one coming along. We're willing to give up all kinds of things if we know that there's something better coming. What we're being told in Philippians is that God had the very best. Jesus had the very best. He was equal with the Father. But he did what? He let it go. You know how they used to catch monkeys for the zoo in an age before blow darts and that sort of thing? Tranquilizers? Very simple and very humane. What they would do is they would take a narrow-throated jar and they would tether it to the ground take it down. And then they would fill it with colored marbles. And the monkey would come along, and monkeys are very curious creatures, hence the title Curious George. (laughs) And they would see those colored marbles, and they would put their little paw in there and grab the marbles. The proverbial kid with his hand caught in the cookie jar. And then he tried to pull his paw out, and what? He was caught. Now, the only thing that the monkey needed to do in order to be free was what? Let go. But monkeys are greedy little creatures, and they won't let go. And so they would come along and simply snatch them up in a satchel and take them off. That's a picture of human beings. Maybe we really did evolve from the monkeys. We haven't changed all that much. We're still holding on to things, aren't we? And we don't want to let them go. But Jesus had the best. There was nothing better to come along, but he let it go. He let go the best. The glories, the majesty of heaven. He let it go for you. That you might know him. And in coming to know him, may come to know eternal life. That's how God makes himself known to us. The things that have been made and supremely in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally he does that through the apostles. Jesus was there on this earth for 33 years. He was active for three of those years. And 12 men had the privilege of getting to know him extremely well. Sleeping by his side, eating their meals with him, being a witness to his great miracles. How many of you have ever thought, well, if I had the advantage of Peter and James and John, if I had seen the things that they saw, if I had seen the widow of Nain's son or Lazarus raised from the dead, if I had seen the lepers cleansed on the border of Samaria, if I had been there when Jesus calmed the waves or when he walked on the water, then I could believe. How many of you have ever thought that? Oh, they had great advantages. Well, let me tell you something. The apostles knew they had great advantages. They knew that they had an advantage that nobody else was going to have. So they decided to write down what they had experienced with Jesus in a book so that successive generations would have the advantage of witnessing those things themselves. Now you might think, well, it's not quite the same thing. It's not quite the same thing, but it's pretty darn close. When I was a young priest at uh, St. David's Church in Chirau, I went to visit a man Um, He was dying of cancer at the time, and I walked into his house, he was a wonderful man, Mr. Kimmel was his name, and I walked in, and on the walls I walked in, this is Veterans Weekend, Veterans Day Weekend, there was a black and white photograph of all these sailors in their dress uniforms on the deck of a ship, and uh, being interested in military history, I, I was captivated by that. So we started to talk and in the course of our conversation I asked him about that photograph. I said tell me about that photograph. He said well that was when I was serving in World War II. That was my ship's company. And I said where did you serve? He said we served in the Atlantic. And I said did you face any combat? He said yes. I said what was the most exciting experience for you? He said well I remember we were part of a convoy he said on one occasion. And he said and we were making our way across and all of a sudden, we came under attack from a German U-boat, German sub. And he said one of the uh, lead ships was torpedoed and sank almost immediately. Said so just went like a stone. At which point, General, Order, General Quarters was sounded. He said the sirens were going off. Everybody was running to their battle stations, running up and down. And he said, I was running to my battle station. He said, I was just a young Second class, I was just running into my battle station, but I had to go by the bridge and I could hear the captain shouting, where are they, where are they? And he said, I knew exactly where they were. I said, how did you know? He said, because when I looked over the side of the ship, I could see a periscope. <laughs> and when he told me that, I felt the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Because I was as close to that event as I could possibly get without actually being there. That's what happens when you read the scriptures. (laughs) That's what the apostles were doing. They were writing it down so that you and I might have the same experience that they did. When we come back next week, we're going to take a look at the scriptures. Because I think that's a big issue for many people today. Yes, but they were written 2,000 years ago. How do we know that they're accurate? How do we know that what's been transmitted to us over the course of this two millennia is, is exactly what the apostles wrote? We're going to take a look at all of that next week. But I want you to understand, difficult times are going to come for us. But we should be shocked but not surprised. Jesus said it was going to happen. And when it happens, let's remember. Remember what? Remember that others have been through this. We're not alone. Remember the examples of those who have gone before. And let us not forget what we've been taught. Taught where? Taught in the Holy Scriptures. We'll take a look at those when we come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. It is not a dead letter, it is a living word. By your Holy Spirit, it speaks to us today with power and with relevance for our lives. Grant us the grace to trust it. In times of difficulty, grant us the grace to remember those who've gone before. Grant us the grace to remember what we have been taught, that we may be examples to successive generations. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.